Revelations chapter 2, we're going to read verses 12 through 17. If you have the means and you're able to do so, I would ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you need to remain seated, that's fine. Don't, don't think twice about it. Revelations chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. If you're there, say amen. amen. If you ain't there, say hold on. All right, here we go. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, and if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. You can be seated. And as you're seated, go to the Lord in prayer with me. Father, I come to you this morning. Lord, all we can do is just say thank you. Lord, thank You that we are able to even be here, worship You freely. Lord, um, in our culture, it's, it's been popular to be a Christian. <laughs> we've, we've not had to really suffer persecution for, for following You. And Father, I thank You for that. I thank You that, um, Lord, You have um, so blessed us that we freely worship and serve you with really no consequence for it whatsoever other than good consequences. Father, on the same side, I, on the other side, Lord, I know that, um, Lord, maybe it had been good if we had some persecution. Lord, forgive us where, we have, um, where we've got comfortable in our faith. Forgive us where we have not... Um, truly made you Lord of everything. Lord, forgive us this morning where we have made agreements with the world, where we have, um, where we have tolerated and compromised, and, and Father, where we have been okay with sinful things. Father, I pray that this morning would be the morning that you, that you would lead us out of those things. Father, I pray this would be the morning that you would speak your word to us and we would be completely and forever changed because of what you spoke to us. Father, I pray this morning and I give you thanks for every man and woman that, that has given their lives so that we can live the way that we live today. Father, thank you for their sacrifice. Thank you for raising up people that are willing to give everything for for people that they don't even know. And Father, I pray this morning and give you thanks for Jesus, most especially. 
God, thank you that he came and he gave his life so that we could have eternal life with you. Father, I don't even want to think about what it would have been had he not been willing to do that. Father, I pray this morning and I I ask you that you would be with the families of those that have lost loved ones in our community. Father, I pray for uh, the well, the church, Father, that has, um, has lost some of its members to a car accident. Father, those families that have lost daughters and granddaughters. Father, I just pray that, Lord, you would comfort those families this morning. God, I pray, I, I can't imagine the sadness in that church this morning. Father, so I pray, for, I pray for the pastor of that church. Father, I lift him up to you and I ask you to strengthen him. And Father, I pray that, that Lord, he would have the words that he needs to have. I pray that, that he would be able to pray the way he needs to pray. I pray that he would be able to preach the way that, that he needs to preach this morning. And Father, I pray that you are glorified and that these people's faith is uplifted because of what you do through him this morning. Father, again, I pray for those families and I ask you that you'd comfort them. Father, I pray for the peace that passeth all understanding. And Father, I pray that, that Lord, you would have mercy on those young ladies' souls. And I pray that they knew you. And Father, I pray that they are with you right now. And so, Father, I pray that those families would have every reason to rejoice. Father, to, to weep, to cry, but to do it full of hope. So, Father, I pray for them this morning. We lift them up to you. God, right now... I pray that you would speak to us whatever it is that you want us to hear. And as I said before, Father, change us. Use your word and make us what you mean for us to be. Don't allow us to stay the same. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it does in our lives. And we ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We, um, we're continuing our study today in the book of uh, Revelation. I want to preach to you today... From the subject, come out from among them and be separate. So if you're taking notes, the title of the message is Come Out From Among Them and Be Separate. This came from a um, quote that Paul gave in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And he was actually quoting from Isaiah chapter 52, I believe it was. And Isaiah was prophesying about the exiles, Babylon had came in and they had conquered uh, the promised land. They had conquered Jerusalem. Many of the Jews fled and went back to Egypt when this happened. And for those of you that know your Bible history, you know that that's the very place that God had delivered them from. From all of the false gods that they worshipped, from all of the sinfulness that they were living in, God delivered them from all of that greatly. And then Jeremiah comes in before the Babylonians take over and he warns them. He says, I know some of you are going to be tempted to go back to Egypt. Don't do it. But they did not heed his warning. There were many that chose, instead of going away to captivity in in Babylon, there were many that ended up as exiles in Egypt. And when God got ready after a time of discipline... When God got ready to call them back, to bring them out of that, He he, he said these words. And so we're going to go back to 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18. And I want to show you 
where Paul is coming from and then show you exactly what it is that Isaiah was talking about so that you can get the proper context of where we're at in Revelation this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, this is what it says. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now many times we apply this to, to just marriage, right? And it does apply to that, no doubt. Um, God wants to make sure that anybody we yoke ourselves up with, that we are walking in the same direction, that we're serving the same God, so that you don't yoke up with somebody, as in this context, that was serving multiple gods, and thereby going in two different directions. And so he says here, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, period. Not just marriage, but in everything, in all of life. Don't yoke yourself up with anybody that's going in a different direction than you're going. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? So here's what he does. He says, in order to get my point across, I'm going to ask you, I think it's five questions here. And I'm going to ask you five questions, and they're basically rhetorical questions, but he wants them to think about what the answer is, because it's obvious what the answer is. But to make his point, he asks these questions. The first question, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what partnership has righteousness with wickedness? Well, what's the obvious answer to that? Nothing, right? Righteousness and wickedness have no partnership whatsoever. And so that, that's a big fat, absolutely nothing. The next question in the same verse, verse 14, he says, What fellowship has light with darkness? And the answer, nothing, right? And so here we go again. It's a rhetorical question, but he wants him to think about what the answer is. Absolutely nothing. The next question in verse 15, what does Christ have in common? And this is just another name for Satan here. What does Christ have in common with Satan? Absolutely nothing. And then in verse 15, the next question, what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? Again, absolutely nothing. And then in verse 16, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? And there we have the same answer. Absolutely nothing. There is no agreement whatsoever in this. So the point that Paul is making is that we do not belong in wickedness. We do not belong in darkness. We do not belong with Satan. We do not belong with unbelievers. Now again, he's not saying that we should separate ourselves to the point that we have nothing to do. We don't speak to them. We don't... That's not what he's saying because we see in other places he tells us to be in the world, but not of the world. But as far as yoking ourselves up with these things, living in them, being a part of what they're a part of, the answer is no, you have no part in this. And then you don't have any part with idols, with anything. Listen, God is a jealous God. He does not share His glory. He does not share His worship with anyone or anything. And so He calls us out of all that to make Him Lord of our life. Lord, literally, He's over everything. Whatever He commands, that is my desire. That is what I desire to do. And then He f finishes up in verse... Um, in verse 16, 
For we are the temple of the living God. So here he gives the reason why we have no association with any of these things. God has made you His dwelling place. God has put His Holy Spirit in you, and now you are the place where the Spirit of God lives. He resides with you. And so he says, and he quotes from Isaiah, as God has said, and here's what God said about it. I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them. I will be their God. Now listen to these wills. These are promises, right? God's saying, this is what I'm going to do for all of those that I call out of darkness into the light. I'm going to do this. And he says, and they shall be my people. Therefore, as a result of that, here's what you are commanded to do. Go out from their midst. Come out from among them. And be what? Separate. Separate yourself from all appearances of evil, from any sinfulness, from any darkness. Make no agreements, make no covenants with any of them. Listen guys, we are living in a culture that is more and more... We're living in a church age that the church is becoming more and more okay with things that are not of God. Right? You just had, and again, I'm not trying to put down the Methodist denomination because there are good Christian people in the Methodist denomination. So when I say this, don't think I'm saying that, that they're the worst and we're the best. And No, absolutely not. We got people in our congregation and in our denomination that are equally as evil as anything they have done. But it's sad when a major denomination in the United States comes to a point that they have to take a vote on whether or not they allow the sin of, of adultery, homosexuality, sexual immorality. Do we, are we okay with this? Are we okay with them being pastors in our church? How do we even come to that? I'll tell you how we come to it. Because we are in a culture and in a church that we are okay with things that God is not okay with. And that's what we're fixing to deal with right here. And so God says, Come out from among their midst and be separate from them and touch no unclean thing. Here's your responsibility. He says, I've called you out. I've already made my dwelling among you. And not because you didn't touch unclean things. Not because you made yourself perfect. He did all that other before this part. But now based on who you are and who He has made you to be, here's what your part is. Touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Almighty. And go on to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, the very next verse. There's no division in it other than the fact that we put a chapter and a verse on it. Look what he says next. Since we have these promises, what promises? That I'll be your God, that I will dwell among you, that I will walk among you, that you will be my people, that I will be a father to you, that I will welcome you, that you shall be sons and daughters to me. Since we have these promises, this is what God said. So since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Come out from among them and be ye separate. 
completely separate from all the things of the world. And so we should always be separating ourselves from any participation in sin. Now today in Revelation chapter 2, if you'll go back there, today in Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, we meet a church that this was their struggle. They had already overcome the persecution. They had already lived through the days of persecution. And now they're in a time period that they're still in this worldliness and they're making agreements and they're making covenants with things that God is not okay with. He has said, come out from among them and be ye separate. And they have said, we're going to claim the name of Christ and we're going to be Christians and we're going to live for Him and we're all about Him and we worship Him and we serve Him with everything in us. But He's okay with this. And He's okay with this. Come on, am I talking to anybody this morning? He's okay with this in my life. And this is really not a big deal. And this is the kind of church that we were dealing with. They were a church that was truly in the world. And what I mean by that, they were surrounded by sexual immorality, by idol worship. They were surrounded by worldliness every which way they turned. But God was not going to lower the standard of righteousness for them just because their culture was the kind of culture they were living with. Church, are you hearing me this morning? God is not lowering your standard of righteousness that He declares you do this. Come out from among them and be separate. He's not going to now stand in front of you and say, well, you lived in a culture that, listen, they were okay with this. And so because they were okay with it, I understand. I'm sorry. He's not lowering your standard of righteousness because of the culture that you live in. The command is still the same. Come out from among them and be you separate. If you, want to, if you want to recognize that you have been in darkness, contrary, uh, living a life contrary to God, rebellion in Him and against Him and His ways, but now you've seen Christ and you've heard His call and you've come out, He says, here's your standard. Come out from among them and be you separate. Don't keep living in the ways that the world lives in. <clears throat> As per our goals from chapter 1, if you've been here through the continuous study of this, our goals, one of them was that Jesus was going to reveal Himself in this book in a way that we've not yet seen Him and sometimes in a way that we need to see Him as the church. This instance, we, He reveals Himself as a way that we need to see Him and this church needs to see Him. We're also going to see another goal is that He wanted us to be blessed. He said whoever reads this Word and whoever keeps this Word, they will be blessed. And so we're going to see that if we'll read this and we'll keep this as a church, we'll be blessed. But if we don't, what's the opposite of blessing? So, and then the last goal that we're going to look at today, that we might persevere to the end. Christ means to give us this message so that we keep fighting the good fight. Because let me tell you something, it don't get easier in this world. Your Christian walk, when you first came to know Christ, man, you were so excited and on fire, and it didn't take you long to realize, whew, man, this is tough. This is, a, this is a fight. And let me tell you something. The fight don't get easier as the life goes on. If anything, the fight gets harder 
but he keeps providing the strength you need to keep fighting. And so he gives you this so that you might keep fighting. Keep on keeping on. Persevere to the end. Jesus had walked among this church. You remember, he said he was walking among the seven golden lampstands which represented the churches. And he was inspecting these churches. And he was going to come back and tell them, this is what I see when I inspect this church. And he saw that these were a people that needed to see him as the way he introduced himself in verse 12. In Revelation 2 verse 12 it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write these words. These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And so he wants you to see him as one who has the sharp two-edged sword. What does that mean? What is He trying to reveal to us here? Well, when you go back and you look at the Scriptures, you'll learn that the two-edged sword was what represented the Word of God. In uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, He says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so here it says very plainly that the Word of God is like a two-edged sword and it is sharper than any two-edged sword because it's able to get down into places that nothing else can get to. We'll come back to that in a minute. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 says this, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Revelations chapter 2, verse 16, I believe it was, He actually told us that if we don't repent, then He's going to come to us soon and make war against us with the sword of His mouth. And so here's what you get. Jesus is trying to help us understand that He is giving us His Word. And it is a sword. And it could serve one of two purposes. This sword can serve to get down into the intentions of the heart and the mind, and it can divide between the soul and the spirit and the bone and the marrow. And here's what He's saying there. This sword can either be a surgical instrument that cuts out all the things in your life that don't belong, right? The sword of God is living and powerful. It is able to cut down and divide anything that it needs to. And so the word of God can either serve this purpose. The two-edged sword can either be the surgical tool that cuts out everything in your life that don't belong. Or it can be the two... What are swords for? Are swords for plowing fields? Do you, plow, do you work a garden with a sword? What do you do with a sword? You kill with the sword. They have no other purpose. And so here he wants you to understand that if you don't see him now as the one with the two-edged sword that is coming out of his mouth that has the power to cut out the things in your life that don't belong, if you don't see it as that right now, then when he comes back, then he's coming back to make war against you and use this same two-edged sword to condemn you with it and to kill you with it. And those are your choices that you have. And so this is a very serious introduction right here. When he comes in and introduces himself this way, he wants to make sure you understand, I'm serious about what I'm fixing to tell you. And you have two options. You can let it cut out of you what don't belong, or you can keep pursuing it and you can let it be judgment against you. 
Either way, I am, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Next, in verse 13, we have the results of the inspection. So Jesus is walking through this church and he gives us the results of the inspection. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell. I know, I'm walking through it, I'm with you. I know where you dwell. I know that it's where Satan's throne is. I know that you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And so here he's saying, I know what it's like in Pergamum. I know what it's like where you live at. little history on Pergamum. Pergamum, much like Smyrna, is a major city in Asia Minor. It was actually the capital city in Asia Minor. The city still exists today, but it's known as Bergamum, Turkey. It sits about 40 to 50 miles north of Smyrna, which was the church we looked at last week. So if you were looking at a map, we began at Ephesus on the coast. We moved about 30, 40 miles north to Smyrna. And then we move up about 40 to 50 miles north to Pergamum. It sits just about... 20 miles inland from the coast, so it's not right on the coast, but it sits on top of this very high mountain. Its Acropolis actually, actually rivals Athens. For those of you that remember studying the book of Acts, you remember when Paul walked through Athens, he said, oh my goodness, he couldn't believe the idol worship that was there. This place actually rivaled Athens in their idol worship and their temples. And so this was a place that Jesus refers to. This is where Satan's throne is. This is a place where Satan dwells. Smyrna had to deal with the synagogue of Satan, you remember from last week. But here we're finding out that Pergamum has been living where Satan's house is. This is not just a synagogue of Satan. This is where Satan's house is. Like Smyrna, Pergamum had a temple that required all citizens to worship and proclaim that Caesar is Lord at least once per year. And if they didn't, then they were found out and they refused to do it. They would be killed. They also had temples and altars built to other gods. There's only two that I'm going to make mention of for time this morning. The first one was that they had an altar and a temple that was built to the God, their Savior, or so they had posted on this thing. Zeus, the Savior, the God of all gods. And since He is considered the God of all gods, then it is likely that that's why this is where Jesus refers to as the throne of Satan, as the place where Satan dwells. Because everybody came from all over to come here and worship the God of all gods, the the Savior of Asia Minor and of the world as far as what they were concerned. The word throne that we have here comes from a Greek word that means this. The seat that the master of the house sits in. This is where Satan literally felt at home. He had his seat. He was the master of this house in Pergamum. That's important. Interestingly, in the 1900s, And you can go find all this anywhere. There's a museum in Germany that has this altar. In the early 1900s, an archaeologist and an engineer from from Berlin, I believe it was, went over to Pergamum and they uncovered the ruins of this temple. You can go visit this same temple today. It's in Berlin, Germany. They moved it and they now have a Pergamum museum in Berlin, Germany, and you can go over there, you can Google it right now, and you can see a picture of it. 
This, they have the west side of this temple and altar set up in this museum. Interestingly, this may not mean anything, but it is very interesting. It came to Germany just in time for a dictator that you probably all know his name, Hitler, just in time for him to design his own temple and his own altar after and be a replica of this temple. And it is from this place, from this altar that he set up, that he gave all of his speeches to his Nazi parties. Interesting, right? Interesting that Jesus called this the throne of Satan and this is the path that it takes. I'm not saying that how it's connected, but I'm saying it is very, very interesting. The next thing, the city also had a healing center. These things are important. Don't let me lose you. This context is very important. This city also had a healing center. It was called the Asclepian. People came from all over. Even the emperors of Rome came to this place to be healed from all kinds of sicknesses. There was a sign that hung over the entrance of this hospital, if you will. There was a sign that hung over this hospital that said, Death is not permitted here. So in other words, the only way that you were getting into this place is if they knew that you were going to live. So as long as you were going to live and your sickness was not unto death, you could come into this hospital. But here's what they would do. When you came in, you would come in and you would drink a sedative. Now Fagan, don't get up and run out of here on me when I start telling this, alright? They would drink a sedative. And when they drank this sedative, they had to spend the night in this temple. They would lay on the floor and there were snakes in this temple. And as they laid on this floor... It was said from the Asclepian priest in this place that if a snake crawled over you while you were asleep, then it meant that healing was coming to you because that serpent represented the serpent god of Asclepian. Now interestingly, have you ever seen the symbol for medicine? What is the symbol for medicine today? It's the rod of Asclepian with the serpents going around it. That's where this comes from. All of this comes right back to here. And so, if they slithered over you in the night, then it would mean that, that you had healing power coming your way. If by chance you had a dream in the night, then your responsibility was to get up the next morning, go sit down with the priest of Escapulian of, of in this temple, and tell them this dream. They would interpret this dream for you and tell you what your sickness was, whether healing was going to come or not, and so on. And so this was the place that you would come to get your diagnosis. Here's also something that's interesting. There was a bishop in the town of, of Pergamum, the pastor of this church. His name was Antipas. The priest of Asclepian went to the governor of Pergamum. And they complained that the spirits that they served, were coming to them in their dreams and telling them that the prayers of Antipas are driving them out of the city and they are hindering the work of the god of Asclepian. And so the governor of Pergamum brought the priest with, uh, with Antipas before him and he told Antipas, Proclaim that Caesar is Lord and sacrifice to this statue of him. Sacrifice incense and wine and then you can live. Because he knew he wasn't going to do it. And he didn't do it. And so when he refused, here's what happened. They went and they built a bronze bull 
and they put it on the altar of Zeus. Remember how these two places fit together? The God of gods. And they put it on the altar of Zeus. And they, they tied Antipas in a way that when they put him inside of this bronze bull, his head was in the head of the bull and the rest of him was sitting down in the body of the bull. Then they went and they got wood and they put it under the bronze bull and they lit a fire. And little by little, Antipas roasted to death because of his faith. But it is said, tradition tells us, some of the early church fathers wrote of it, and tradition tells us that while he was dying, that you could still hear him praying for his church and for that city. Now with that context, go back with me to Revelations chapter 2 and let's read verse 13 again. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas. Even when you watched your pastor roast to death in a bronze bull, you did not deny my faith, you did not deny my name. He was killed among you where Satan dwells. Context is pretty important, right? This is a very, very great commendation. I know all that you're going through. I know where you live. I know your culture. I know that you stay true to me even when persecution was so strong that people were being roasted, cooked, cooked to death because of their faith. But, verse 14, here comes the condemnation. Verse 14, But I have a few things against you. You have before the you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idol and, idols and practice sexual immorality. So here's the first condemnation. You have some in the church, as faithful as they are, they're holding on to Balaam's teaching. Here's the quick version of the story of Balaam. He was a prophet of God for hire. You can go back to the book of Numbers and read the whole story. But he was a prophet of God for hire. And so whenever the Israelites had come out of Egypt and went through the wilderness and they're entering into the promised land and they have just conquered the Amorites and now they're on the edge of Moab. And the king of Moab, Balak, he sees this great company. He's heard of their God. He knows what happened to the Egyptians. He knows what happened to the Amorites. And now he sees them on the edge of his camp. And so he tries to find somebody who can curse them. And so he finds the prophet Balaam. And he says, hey, come curse this people for me. I'll pay you with silver and gold. And Balaam comes back and says, okay. And so he goes and he asks God, can I curse this people? And God says, no, I've blessed them. You can't curse them. So he goes back and he tells Balak and Balak's men, he says, I can't curse them. They're blessed of God. So Balak ups the ante. And he says, okay, I'll give you even more silver and gold. And he sends some of the, the highest people of the city to him to try to persuade him. And so Balak says, okay, okay. Or I'm sorry, Balaam goes back and he asks God. He said, God, listen, they've upped the ante. They've upped Annie. And so, listen, can I curse this people? And God says, no, you can't curse this people. They're my people. I've blessed this people. Go back and tell them no. And he begged and he pleaded with God. And he said, God, they want me to go with them. They won't let me say no. And so God finally says, okay, listen, you can go with them. 
You can go and look at these people, but you cannot curse them. That's the end of it. And so Balaam starts on his way, and if you know the story of the donkey, he gets stopped, the donkey tries to stop because there's an angel in the way that's fixing to kill him, and him and the donkey have a conversation. So some of you know that story. If you don't, go back to Numbers and read it. But then he finally gets to the other side, and he's standing on top of a mountain with the king of Moab. And he says, look at these people. Now pronounce a, a curse over them and I'll bless you more than you've ever been blessed. I'll give you everything that your heart desires. And so here Balaam starts trying to curse them. But every time he tries, the only words that will come out of his mouth is a blessing. And Balak says, wait a minute, I told you to curse them. What are you doing? He says, listen, I'm trying. I can't. All I can do is bless them. And this happened, I think, about three more times, I believe is how the story goes. And so finally... What Numbers 31 tells us is that Balaam finally advised Balak and he said, Listen, God will not allow these people to be cursed. But here's what you do. If you will go back and you will get some of your beautiful women to come in and seduce the men, they will fall in love with them and they will start serving your gods and then God will curse them. And so on that advice, that's exactly what happened. And the men of Israel and the women unequally yoked, not according to race, according to religion, unequally yoked, they came in here and they started yoking up with these Moabite women. And as a result of that, they began to serve their gods and they began to go back to the thing that God had told them to come out from among you, them and be ye separate. And so now we have this teaching that is taking place and saying that, listen, it's okay. You can still walk with God. You can still go to the promised land. You can still be on your way and still serve these things over here. And then he goes on in Revelation chapter 2 and he says next that there are some among you who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And without giving you the history on that, some say that this was a teaching that started from the deacon Nicholas that actually um, came in Acts chapter 6. We don't know for certain what it is. But the gist of it is this. They were teaching and they were holding on to these teachings. They were teaching that I can walk with God and we can be true to His name, and we can be faithful to Him, and we can belong to Him, and yet we can still have our self-indulgences and, and the things that we desire, and we don't have to fight our sin. We can just live however we want to live, and we can do whatever we want to do, and Jesus is okay with it. And here's what Christ said about it when He told the church of Ephesians in Revelation chapter 2, I think it's verse 6, Revelation chapter 2 verse 6, he said, You have this going for you. You hate the teachings of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. In other words, Jesus said, I hate that kind of teaching. I hate preaching that comes in and says, Y'all are okay. Live however you want to live. Do whatever you want to do. Just stay true to the name of Jesus Christ. No, I hate it, is what he said. Because my message is this, come out from among them and be ye separate. And so that is the condemnation that they face. And Jesus hates any teaching that teaches anything other than come out of this darkness and follow me as Lord of your life. And listen, I'm coming to a close. Our cultures and our churches have become more and more like this. Guys, this is the American church. 
If there were a church in these seven churches that we're looking at that most closely relates to you and I, this is it. This is it. Our culture and our church has become okay with so many different forms of sexual immorality, idol worship. I'm not going to get into what all an idol is. But our churches and our people have become more and more okay with it. We're satisfied with Jesus not being Lord of our life, but we confess Him and we follow Him and we love Him and we're true to Him. Even in great persecution, we're true to Him as long as we can have our sin with Him. Right? And so here He comes in and He says, Homie, don't play that. This is not the way that Jesus is teaching. This is not the way that He accepts it. But we as a church have done this. Revelation chapter 2 verse 16. Here's the command. Therefore, repent. Here's the command. We've had the commendation. We've had the condemnation. Here's the command. Repent. Turn away from any and all areas in your life that you know have been taught from the Word of God that this is not God's way. If He has shown you an area in your life that you know this is not God's way, don't keep playing with it. Run away from it. Flee from it. Come out from among them and be ye separate, is what this is saying. Next we have the warning. The command was repent. Here's the warning. If not... If you do not do this, in verse 16, If not, I will come to you soon, and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. And what are swords used for? That's the warning. Right now you have an opportunity for this sword to be a surgical tool that actually gets out the things that don't belong. Or you can wait around and not repent and keep walking in it, and this will be the tool that He comes back to kill and destroy you with. And then finally, the reward. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is to everybody. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And here's what he's saying. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the manna that fell from heaven. That's what Jesus said. And so what He's saying here is, as long as you trust His Word and you follow Him by faith, and this ends up being your life, it will prove your faith genuine, and I will give you the manna from heaven to eat, which is the bread of life. He says, I'm going to give you eternal life here. And then He says, not only that, I'm going to give you a white stone. Two possible meanings for this. One is that a white stone was given to, in the sports that they took place in here, a white stone was given to the victor. And this white stone was your entrance or your ticket to get in to the feast of champions, to the party. And so I believe what he's saying here is, I'm going to give you eternal life. And not only am I going to give you eternal life, but I'm going to give you the ticket to get in to the party. I'm going to give you the ticket to get into the great feast. I'm going to give you the ticket to get into eternal bliss. And then he says, I'm going to give you a new name that no one knows except the one who has it. 
And so here's what that means, I believe. In Philippians chapter 2, I think it was, somewhere around in there, maybe 3. Philippians um, tells us that because Jesus was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, because of that, God has highly exalted Him and has given Him a name that is above every other name so that the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that He is Lord. And so here's what I believe this new name is. God's saying, I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to give you a name that is lifted up, that is high. I'm going to give you a name that nobody knows it, but everybody knows the honor that is attached with it. And just like Jesus... I believe that you'll serve with Him and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord and that you're His brother or you're His sister. Listen, in closing, guys, I really believe this is our, not necessarily our church as a whole, but in our culture, in our society, this is us. This, this is us. And I believe this warning is for you and I. And I believe this, this um, commendation is for you and I. And I believe this reward is for you and I. But if we do not repent and turn away from the ways that God has clearly said, this is not my way, if we're unwilling to do that, I believe it will prove our faith to be ungenuine and He will come and He will war against us with the sword of His mouth and it will be used for our destruction. And so it's my prayer this morning that you will be blessed by this Word and that it will change your life and that this morning will be the morning that you'll say, God, I'm turning away from this sin that so easily ensnares me. I'm coming back to you. I'm getting where I belong. I'm coming under your... Remember, this ain't about stumbles. This is about lifestyles. This ain't about mistakes that we make. This is about lifestyles that we choose every day to live in. And this is important.